All right, we're continuing our study through the life of George Mueller, looking at his autobiography uh, this week from chapters 5 and 6. Uh, he starts out this chapter on October 7th, 1830. I was united in marriage to Miss Mary Groves. This step was taken after much prayer and from a full conviction that it was better for me to be married. I have never regretted either the step itself or the choice, but I am truly grateful to God for giving me such a wife. So my question with this one is, is this a proper attitude to have toward marriage, the preparation, the carrying out, and the living in it? Uh, why or why not? Better than the wives that we have today? No, than the oh, it's just clarifying. <laughs> better than the approach? Okay. What would you say the approach is today for toward marriage? Find someone to make you happy. Okay, find someone to make you happy. All right. And how is his different? He sees it as a gift from God, okay. but not a hindrance to his ministry. Okay. Gift from God and supporting his ministry. All right. Um, other thoughts on this? Okay, yeah, so the, the whole approach to marriage of praying, committing, and sticking with it instead of trying it out first and then, yeah. Right, yeah. Um, yeah, so the, I think the, the thing that he's getting at when he talks about a full conviction, it's better for me to be married. There are some people who have, how would I put this? Um, there are some people who have a gift of singleness, which is to say, um, Paul says there are opportunities to do certain things when you're single and not married and not having kids that you don't otherwise have. Now, I'll admit that there are some people I've met along the way in other places who I've gotten the impression that the reason that they're single is because they were overly, overly particular or not sufficiently motivated to make it happen. And God in His sovereignty uses even that. So I'm not denying that someone can still serve God well despite those things. Uh, the thing that he's getting at is just the normal pattern is to be married, have children, serve God together. But there are exceptions, including Paul himself, who seem that not to have been the case. Now, there are people who say that Paul was divorced. There are people who say that Paul was married and his wife died. There's not really a... There's no one verse that supports the, either of those ideas really strongly. Um, but the point of having prayer, a conviction that it's a good thing, and then a commitment and a recognition that having made that step, this is the, the thing that he's committed to. Those are all, I think, important, important factors in this. And the idea of gratitude and thankfulness, because I think it's easy, um, particularly as marriage goes on, particularly as you learn more about each other, particularly as just the nature of sin creeps in in different ways, it's easy to, uh, to make comparisons or to have sinful attitudes of, what if I had done this instead of that? And that's not where God wants us to go with it. It's, here's the person that you've made the commitment to, and God will give you grace to serve and minister and find joy in one another despite many different challenges. against 
wisdom of their time. According to James 2, 1 through 6, this practice is against the mind of the Lord because the poor brethren cannot afford as good a seat as the rich. A little bit later, my wife and I had the grace to take the Lord's command in Luke 12, 33, literally, sell all that ye have and give alms. And then a little bit later, I have not served a hard master, and that is what I delight to show. So first question, is it wrong for a pastor to have a salary by means of renting pews? Okay. So Okay, so their practice was to rent the pews and then those paid the pastor. Our practice is to take up an offering. I think the principle that he lays out about people who are rich getting the best seats because they're paying more money and all that sort of thing, I think that does go against the passage in James, like he, like he points it out. But I think then he kind of jumps to, well then, there should be no... Uh, salary, formal, whatever kind of support of the church or the pastor. And while it's certainly not commanded in the New Testament in the sort of business kind of model that a lot of churches follow today, I, don't th I think that there's, there's stepping off points along the way between salary coming from pews and no salary at all, right? And so that, that's where I think I would differ from where he's coming from. But this idea of having a salary at all, are there any passages in Scripture that would support that idea at, in any way? Right. And that doesn't have to look like a formal, like, here's the amount of money you're getting every year. It could, it could look like if you're in more of a farming community, people provide, you know, food and groceries and whatever else that you need, right? I mean, it doesn't have to be a money thing. Bob? On that note, that seems to be, that decision seems to be the distinguishing mark throughout the entire book. That decision alone to rely on prayer and not ever asking for anything. Yeah. So it makes me ask two questions. Number one, did God use that conviction specifically for him to be an example to us? Or is that the best way? Okay. So Bob's raising this issue of it being a turning point in the, in, in the life of Mueller, right? To say, I'm going to rely on God, not on other people, like not on other people by asking. Um, so, does God use that conviction to transform his life to make him a good positive example for us? Is this the only way that God can work in these things? I think those are good questions. I mean, the other side of the point is, is this a method God was using to transform his life? Sure. Yeah, so we could make the argument that maybe there are people for whom this idea of, um, let's say that somebody grows up really well off, and for them, loving money is the big sin that they struggle with. This may not be exactly, but kind of getting at what you're saying. If they were to say, God, I'm going to get rid of pretty much everything that I have, and I'm going to rely on you to meet my needs, that would be good for that person's faith, because I think, if you've never had to struggle with, am I going to have food the next day, there's a sense in which you don't trust God as much as you could, right? It's kind of what you're getting at. So, um, so maybe this is not a rule for all people, but we can certainly learn. So that's another question here. What can we learn from his example of trust in God to provide? That God can provide. That God does provide. That we need to pray out to God to provide. 
and that sometimes God makes us wait and it looks like he isn't going to. And all these things are really good lessons for us to think about, particularly when, and I know everybody's background is different, but particularly when we've generally not had to struggle to the extreme that many people have at different points in history to worry about um, you know, food and clothing, those sorts of things. Like, like even the points, I think, for most of us where we've had to struggle and say, am I going to be able to pay my bills? It's not, am I going to be homeless and starving? It's, am I going to have to downsize? Am I going to have to switch jobs? And like those, those tend to be more the kind of questions. And there may be times when some of you have had to, had to wrestle with that. But the point is, this idea of trust in God to provide is something that I think is a little fuzzy of a concept for us in a society where, for the most part, our needs are met or there's some way to get them met. And um, just we just live in a very different kind of a world than he did, and that's not always a good thing for our relationship with God. Tina? Okay, so you're thinking about that as far as... Okay. Yeah. So even if we feel like life is going well now, as far as our needs being met, we don't know our future. There's an interesting point along those lines that I think we have to watch out for, which is if God blesses you financially and you ask that question or think about the thing that Tina raised, what's going to happen in the future? It's very easy for that to turn inward and for us to become stingy and worry about, like, I have to keep everything that I have for me and not share it or give it to anybody else, because what about what could happen later? Tina. Well, my thought is, is we were very, very, very blessed to be born in America. Right. You know, we, we all are. Yeah. You know, there's countries that, that don't have what we have, not saying we should put it inward. Right. And stingy with it. Right. It means that we've been so blessed, we should share more. Yeah, and I'm not saying you were saying we should be stingy. I'm just saying that it's a danger I think we, we run up against. So, so how can we cultivate dependence on God then if we don't do this exact approach of saying I'm going to have basically no material possessions? And let's be honest, and this is something I've been thinking a lot about lately, we could stand to have a lot less in the way of material possessions and still be absolutely fine, right? But if we say I am going to keep my house, I am going to keep my car, I am going to keep some things that I enjoy using, how can we still cultivate dependence on God if we're not going to go to the extreme of refusing salary or, or, or getting rid of almost everything? Paul? Number one would be do a checkbook audit. Okay. Where is my money going? What am I spending it on? And I, oh. I, is there idolatry in that? Okay. Okay, yeah, look at, look at how we're spending our money and see if that is reflecting some kind of idolatry, the, you know, love of stuff and not serving people and all that. Okay, good. What else? What are some other ways for us to think through? Jim? Well, God answers prayers. Okay. He may not always give you what you want or you think you need. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, good. So this idea of continuing prayer, sometimes it's really easy for us to stop praying, you know, give us this day our daily bread if we think that we're going to be all set for the next month, right? Um, but continue to ask for God's provision, be 
uh, amazed and surprised and encouraged by the way he provides for our needs in unexpected ways. Yeah. Yeah, so there's lots of ways to approach this that we don't necessarily have to follow the exact approach that Mueller did, but we can have the same hard attitude, which is what I'm getting at. So, okay. Um, he says, with regard to uh, some things going on health-wise, the doctor said, don't preach, you need to go rest. And he said, I really feel like I need to preach. So he goes and preaches, and he continues to recover. Like, he had a blood vessel burst in his stomach. It wasn't just, I have a cold. It was a, potentially a life-threatening situation, particularly given the medical situation at their time. Um, but he says, kind of as a caveat, do not attempt to imitate me in this matter if you do not have the faith, but if you do, it will most assuredly be honored by God. So what did you guys think about that particular little uh, comment or um, observation that he made? Bob? Yeah, so that's a good question. So he says, um, the Lord gave me faith to get out of bed. Uh, I went, walked to the chapel. It was an exertion, but I preached with a loud and strong voice. After the morning meeting, my doctor called and said, don't preach in the afternoon because I could injure myself. I said I would consider it great presumption if the Lord hadn't given me the faith to do it. He preached again. He called and said the same concerning the evening meeting. Nevertheless, having faith, I preached in the evening. After each meeting, I became stronger, which was plain proof that the hand of God was in the matter. So... This is a really interesting thing in the context of everything that happened with COVID, right? So I think there could be a degree of pride and presumption of saying, I'm incredibly sick, but I've got to be there because people are depending on me. And there's a real sense in which, you know, taking myself personally, if I can't come preach on a Sunday morning, there's probably someone I can call or I could call some of the deacons and say, hey, let's just do a prayer meeting, or someone reads some scripture and do a prayer meeting, sing some songs, call it good. Like, there's lots of options that don't necessitate me coming and uh, making everyone else incredibly sick because I feel like I have to be there. So there's that angle of things. But what if it's something that only affects me? What if I have something that's not contagious, but, you know, I'm really weak? And that's kind of the situation he finds himself in. Paul? In his case, he was he was so so involved in prayer and the Holy Spirit's leading that he was fully convinced this is what he's supposed to do. Yeah. And it wasn't just a whim. It wasn't just a gosh. If I don't do it, who will? It was just a case of I got to do this. Yeah. This is what God wants me to do. Probably a little bit of a parallel. Paul says something like, "Woe is me if I don't preach the gospel." Right. Now, I think we have to also have to recognize the possibility that we could be fully convinced in our own mind and have some sort of potentially life-threatening thing come up and go and do the thing that we feel like God wants us to do and drop dead right after, and that's always a possibility, right? And I think he recognized that that's a possibility. He wasn't convinced it was going to happen, but there are, I think, contrary to our society's goal of living as long as possible, as healthy as possible, and all those sorts of things, should we take care of our bodies and practice self-control instead of gluttony and all that? Absolutely, right? But our bodies and our time and our, our souls, are all of who we are, those are finite resources to be used up in God's service. 
And so we have to recognize that sooner or later, whatever is going to happen that does us in, in God's time, is going to happen. And so if we are always living in this fear of, it could happen right this moment, so I'm going to wait, not do something, that could come take us sitting at home waiting to get better just as easily as it could doing something that we feel like God wants us to do. So yeah, there's a degree of wisdom in seeking God's. In the audio, I don't remember if you touched that in the book, but um, he talks about the gift of faith and the grace of faith. Sure. Did he talk, did he cover that in the book? I can't remember. Not yet, but I, yeah, okay. I, I read that. Yeah, I know what you're talking about. That's yeah. a really important point. That's a huge, under, I mean, to grasp that yeah. in, in this context as well. And I'm going to try to explain it. If I'm not explaining it right, correct me. But I think he distinguishes between the gift of faith that we see in the New Testament, um, where Jesus says the thing like the mountain will be moved and the, you know all these sorts of things. God gives, at least in the early church, to people the, the capacity, the spiritual gift of faith to see God accomplish things that are amazing and remarkable. But God continues to give people the grace of faith to make decisions that are, and I think the way that he put it, things that are not necessarily clearly laid out in Scripture. Things that are clearly laid out. Okay. Yeah, the grace of faith is to believe uh, everything that is laid out in Scripture. Okay. And so then he, he explains and he says, if we don't believe something that is clearly laid out in Scripture, then we are sinning. Uh, by not having faith in that. Sure. Whereas if we don't believe something that is that gift of faith in those particular uh, amazing or supernatural experiences, it wouldn't be a sin to believe it. We just, because it's not clearly laid out that that would happen. So in your instance, he had the gift of faith to preach. Yeah. But if he wouldn't have believed it and stayed home, it wouldn't have been a sin because it's not clearly laid out in the scripture. George Mueller has to preach on this Sunday at this time. Right. Correct. But George Mueller has to preach or he needs to share the gospel. If he refuses to do that, then he's not having the, the grace of faith either. And, not, yeah. and that would be the sin. That would be sin. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So I, if I can find it, I will pull, not if I can find it, when I find it, I will try to post that maybe on the church. Uh, Facebook group or send it out in an email, maybe both, just so we can read through that, because I think it's a good point. Um, so he's moving on. Uh, kind of, I think we talked about one of these either last week or the first week, but there's just this decision of moving from one place of ministry to another place of ministry. Uh, he talks about this. He says, this feeling has continued to grow, and I am now convinced that Tainmouth is no longer my place of ministry. Perhaps my gift uh, is going from place to place, seeking to bring believers back to the scriptures rather than staying in one place and laboring as a pastor. It appears to me that a place like Bristol would suit my gifts better, but I fear that much connected with this decision is of the flesh. So the first thing is, how does God use uncertainty in our decisions when it comes to place of ministry or anything else? How does God use uncertainty in our decisions? Bob? Okay, so of about the situation or of God in prayer or both or yeah, I think everything. I mean, sure. He, I I appreciate so much that he examines his own heart. Sure. And he acknowledges, you know, because he he waffles big time. Yeah. You know, 
I, I think this is what the Lord is doing, but I think it might be also my flesh. Not, I'm, I'm really inclined, but you know, um, I, I need to talk to the people at Sinmouth, and so he is aware enough that God could be working, but also aware enough that there are uh, repercussions for those things. And like you said last week, he considers the people that that's going to affect and, and talk to them. This is a really interesting thing to me. I feel like uh, with regard to this going back and forth on things, this might not be true, but it seems that it is. I'm just going to lay it out there and we can talk about it. I think, I think I probably tend to be the direction of thinking about something, praying about something, becoming convinced it's the right thing, and then just going for it. I think there are other people who are probably more consistent at prayer and more concerned that what they are praying for and seeking after is actually what God wants to do, that it seems like they're more indecisive, kind of like Mueller in this book, but in fact that's a function of being especially concerned that what they're doing is what would please God. And I think it's funny because I think that at least in the context churches having vision and moving forward and all those sorts of things, I think the direction that I would tend toward is what tends to be held up as the ideal, and I'm not convinced that it is the ideal, or at least I think a church needs both kinds of people, right? Because there does have to come a point where we say, yes, this is what God wants us to do, we're going to do it, right? But the fact that there are people who are uncertain about it for a longer period of time is actually a good thing and is not a bad reflection on their character and is, in fact, potentially a sign of them being more open to God saying no to something that seems like a really good and legitimate thing, right? So, going back to his example here, if he feels like he's done the ministry that he can do in this place and he wants to go to this place and do more ministry, there is nothing sinful about that, right? and yet he wants to make sure that there isn't. So then that gets us to the next question of how does God confirm our decisions? Um, If you have your book, look on page 46, I think. He talks about this idea. He says, I preached on the Lord's second coming. I told the brethren what effect this doctrine had on me and how it encouraged me to leave London and preach throughout the land. The Lord had kept me at Tainmouth for two years and three months, and it seemed the time was near when I should leave. I reminded them of what I told them when they requested me to become their pastor, that I could stay only as long as I saw the, world's, the Lord's will sorry, to do so. There was much weeping afterward, but I am again in peace. The next day, I'm glad I've spoken to the brethren so they may be prepared in case the Lord leads me to leave. And so, in this first aspect of thinking through all these things, first of all, he's not breaking a promise that he made to them. He didn't say, I'm going to stay for five years, but now I've changed my mind, I'm going to bail after two, right? He said at the very beginning, I don't know how long I'm going to stay. So there's that to think about. There's the reality that um, his desire to go do the ministry in another place is driven by a conviction of what Scripture says and the ministry that he feels like God wants him to have. If the second coming is real and it's going to happen, there's lots of places that need ministry, and I'm going to go to another of them, right? As opposed to, I'm going to make more money, or have a more comfortable life, 
or be more recognized or all those sorts of things that are quite honestly the more typical motivations for people leaving one place for another place in connection with ministry. Bob? Right. So you're going to see it work in different ways, like you said. But I think our, our overall need and desire should be to make sure, however that looks, that that is the true motivation. Sure. He goes a little bit later, and uh, I think it's on page 48. He says, um, well, he listens to a sermon from this fellow he's been working with, Brother Craig says, his evening sermon spoke, sermon spoke to my heart. I am now fully persuaded that Bristol is the place where the Lord will have me labor. But we are going home next week in order that in quietness, without being influenced by what we see here, we may seek the Lord's will concerning us. I'm absolutely convinced this is what God wants me to do, but I'm going to keep examining it just to make sure, right? And then on page 48, um, one other striking proof that leaving Tainmouth is of God is that some truly spiritual brothers, although they want me to stay, sincerely believe that I am called to go to Bristol. And then a little bit later, some of the brethren say that they expect us back again. As far as I understand the way God deals with his children, this seems unlikely. And then he preaches on Colossians 1, 21 to 23. He said, I scarcely alluded to our separation. Or he said, it seemed best to me to speak as little as possible about myself and as much as possible about Christ. I scarcely alluded to our separation and only commended myself and the brethren in the concluding prayer to the Lord. Parting scenes are very trying, but I'm convinced that the separation is of the Lord. And then the next little entry. Just before we left, we unexpectedly received enough money to defray all the moving expenses. The Lord has confirmed his will concerning us going to Bristol many times. So how then, what are some of the things that he saw as confirmations of him making the right decision? Paul? Okay, godly counsel. Okay, what else? Lots of prayer. A, a recognition that parting is difficult, right? Because there's people who are crying. They want him to come back. They want him to stay. He doesn't see it, but he just says, you know what? I'm going to point you to Christ one last time, right? And that, I think, is hard because I think it's really easy in a situation like that to make it all about the sorrow of the leaving or the difficulty of the change or all of these sorts of things. But he's just said, if I'm going to leave you with anything, it needs to be with Christ, right? And uh, the fact that God provides for their moving expenses, all these things he sees as confirmations that he's making the right decision. Here's the thing about making decisions. Lots of times we're not really convinced that it was the right decision until we look back on it sometime afterward. And that's really frustrating because we want to know right then, in that moment, that it's the right thing to do. And a lot of times I don't think God lets us see that 100%. But looking back, we can see uh, you know, a phrase like from the, hymn, uh, from the hymn where it says, Jesus led me all the way. Right? Um, he makes a really interesting observation amongst all these things about him transitioning to the new ministry. I must offer a word of warning to believers. Often the work of the Lord itself may tempt us away from communion with him. Public prayer will never make up for closet communion. 
A little bit later, after this evening's meeting, I should have withdrawn from the company of the brothers and sisters, explaining that I needed secret communion with the Lord. So, why is time with God as essential as time spent in ministry with others, to others? Yeah. It's our food. It's, it's, our, it's how we gain our strength. Okay. All right. What else? Yeah. Yeah, so this this need for having time quietly alone with God gives us an opportunity to um uh be able to spend time with God, seek what he wants us to do, all of these sorts of things. Um What about this idea of withdrawing from others in order to have that? Let me ask it this way. Are there always going to be needs and people to talk to and things that we can be doing? I think Jesus' example was a great example of that. Okay. He spent a lot of time alone with God yeah. in prayer. Not with all the disciples, but just himself. Yeah. He spent hours doing that. Yeah, so if we look at Jesus' example, I mean, he, if he's God, of all the people we would think don't, don't need to draw away from the crowds and so forth and not recharge, but commune with God... We would think Jesus didn't, but if he did, then I think we desperately need to as well. These two things don't need to be set up in opposition to each other, right? Because we tend to say, either I'm going to spend time with God or I'm going to spend time with people. And his point is you need both, but you've got to be aware when you need both, right? And so if your tendency is, I read my Bible and pray a lot, but I never talk to anybody about Jesus... You need to work on that without stopping the reading your Bible and praying. If you don't read your Bible and pray a lot, but you're always talking to people about Jesus, that's good, but sooner or later you're going to run out of energy and motivation and things to say because you need that time with God. And so it's not either or, it's both of them and having wisdom to know when we need one more than the other. And sometimes they're going to seemingly come into conflict. I'm going to sit down and read my Bible I mean, I've had this happen, you know, I go to one of the restaurants and I'm going to sit down and work on a sermon or something like that, and then I see somebody I feel like I need to talk to, and we end up talking for an hour. That's happened a few times in the last couple of months. And was that wrong for me to say I'm going to put this off and do that? No, because that opportunity was there and it might not have been, probably wouldn't have been later. At the same time, if I'm always doing this and I never get this done, you guys are going to know it comes Sunday, right? So it's a balance, right? Um, to both those things being really important because what we tend to do in our society is I have quiet time so I'm going to fill it with noise of entertainment and I could go out and witness to people but I'm tired and busy after work so I'm just going to sit at home and do what I feel like and so we end up doing neither of the things he's talking about as important or one of them we need to be doing both of them in the right time in the right place. He talks a little bit later about this idea of appointing a time to sort of have conversations with people who have curiosity about salvation. And he says in regard to that, appointing a time for counseling with them in private concerning the things of eternity has brought some who never would have called us upon, uh, called upon us under other circumstances. So my question would be, how did God use these invitations to discuss salvation? And is it helpful to create opportunities other than regular church services to 
Um, let people who are curious about God kind of learn more about Him. What might that look like? Some of those sorts of things. Yeah? Well, so the, the thought that I had immediately was, you know, like you had done in the past of reaching out to members of the congregation and saying, hey, let's, let's meet up, let's talk, let's, you know, see how things are going. And it's inevitable, and I don't know if this is exactly where he was going, but I, I imagine he was reaching out to, I don't know what membership looked like, I guess is my Sure, point. yeah. I'm imagining he's reaching out to not total strangers, but people that were coming to the church. Sure. With the understanding that some were saved, some were not. Sure. But all of the meetings resulted into in a greater understanding of where they were and how to minister to them. So meetings with some people potentially who are believers but are having questions about some salvation or other things, and people who are not believers who just really don't understand the gospel, um, it, that there were a lot of opportunities that gave... Um, he says, for example, often when we thought our teaching the Word had done no good at all, we found the opposite was true as we counsel with people. We have been encouraged to go forward in the work of the Lord after seeing the many ways the Lord has used us as His instruments. Individuals has told us about the help they derived from our ministry even as long as four years ago. And so, um, yeah. He says, the appointments have been by far the most exhausting part of all our work, although at the same time the most rewarding. So sometimes the things that are the hardest are also the most useful and profitable in seeing God's work go forward. Other thoughts on this point? Yeah, Rob. Yeah, various various venues, various sizes of groups, various flexibility as far as time spent on things, and yeah, I, I think if we have a particular time slot for something, sometimes it puts pressure on people to feel like they don't have enough time to get into a particular topic because they know it's going to be a really big topic, and so just setting aside times where it's not just here's an hour, but there could be a couple hours if we need to, or it could be you know three days in a row if we have to, or whatever, just to work through some things. Um, he makes a uh, one more comment that I thought was really fascinating, and I didn't capitalize the M, so sorry for those of you that that bothers. It was an accident. Uh, Many more people have been convicted of sin through Brother Craik's preaching than my own. This is probably because Brother Craik is more spiritually minded than I am, and he prays more earnestly for the conversion of sinners than I do. So how should we respond to God seeming to use someone else more than us? Rob? Yeah, okay, so we should recognize it's a reality, yeah. all right, at different points and in different ways. Bob? It's both an opportunity to praise God, but also to examine our own hearts like he does. Yeah, so to praise God, and then he says, this led me to more earnest prayer for the conversion of sinners. Since then, the Lord has used me as an instrument of conversion much more often. What would be the sinful response? Sure. Yeah, <laughs> jealousy, resentment trying to discredit that person's ministry, but instead he lets God use it so that God is blessing this guy's ministry 
and now God is going to increase his ministry because he learns from this guy's good example and is more motivated to draw closer to God. Yes? The thing that bothers me about that portion is, is how are you measuring that? Okay. He's, he's making a statement, and how did you come here? It doesn't explain how he came to that conclusion. Okay. Is that something he was just assuming? Or? Yeah. Yeah, so how do we evaluate that... Um, more people are convicted. Uh, I assume perhaps in connection with these conversations that he's having with people. We don't know. Yeah. And, you know, at the... It's dangerous too. It can be, yeah. I mean, if, if our benchmark is here's how many people have been saved talking to this person versus how many people have been saved talking to me, and that in any way leads us to either pride or jealousy or a pragmatism that says God has to do the exact same thing through every person, Right. That can be a dangerous thing. Right. Yeah, and I think his. I think his was. I think we have to think about the setting in which this is taking place. For example, so all the stuff about church growth and walking the aisle and decision cards and all that that really flowed out of Charles Finney. I could I guess we could call it ministry, but I mean we might want to just call it detriment ministry, right? Um, but his, that, uh, that was his thing. He said, if we look at the things that produce a particular result and we create those same conditions over and over again, then we'll almost inevitably produce the particular result. And that's a really dangerous way to approach ministry because it's not supposed to be about us making results but God, right? I'm pretty sure chronologically Finney came significantly later than Mueller, so I think if we consider his time period, he's less influenced by some of those ideas than we would be today. But that same question of how do we evaluate these things, I think he's just looking at it and saying, as I see the response of people being driven to prayer and drawing closer to God and all that, it seems like it's happening more under this ministry than under my ministry when I'm preaching versus his preaching. There could be many reasons for that, but if the jumping off point from that is not necessarily trying to superanalyze it, but to say, I need to pray more and be more concerned about sinners. That's absolutely, I think, a good response, you know, coming from there. Bob? I think, too, he's in a, a great position to know what it looks like when you're living, as he said, for Satan, and there's that change to where you're now you're living for God. Based on his own life Based before conversion. Life, right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, so he perhaps has a clearer sense of what it looks like to be convicted of sin because he was a pretty significant sinner himself. So that's a good point. Any other thoughts on these two chapters as we wrap up here? Rob. Um, with this last quote there, um, I mean, it's certainly humility on his part, right? What, what he's saying may not even be true. Yeah. But he's humbling himself, saying this guy is doing a greater, better job than I am. Sure. Whether it's true or not, we, we don't even know, but it's certainly humility, for sure. Driving him back into prayer and reflecting on growing as a leader and all that. It's, it's, it's really humble. Yeah, I mean, the humility aspect is definitely a good thing to learn from as well. So, good. Okay. Anything else? All right, let's go ahead and pray. Dear God, we thank you for this opportunity to continue looking at these things. Again, uh, Mueller was not perfect. We don't have to do everything the way that he did, but his heart, it seems like, was in the right place, and we can definitely learn from his fervency in following after you. And so I pray that you would give us that same sort of desire to be pleasing to you, 
knowing that we're not always going to get it right, knowing that there are going to be times when we've made uh, wrong decisions or not done it as well as we should have, but that if our goal is to please you, more often than not, we will be doing what is right in your sight, as that is anchored in Scripture and prayer and all these things we, that we've seen modeled here. And so we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.